there. Welcome to another episode of the EDS at Union Now podcast. Up next, Dean Kelly Brown Douglas will continue the series, Being Church in the Time of COVID-19. This week, the conversation will center on care for those experiencing abusive relationships or who are in recovery amidst the isolation that is quarantine. The Reverend Dr. Pamela Cooper-White is an Episcopal priest as well as Vice President for Academic Affairs and the Dean of Union Theological Seminary. She has written countless books and articles on counseling, psychoanalysis, women, violence in the church, as well as psychotherapy in general. The video version of this podcast is available both on the Episcopal Divinity School Facebook page as well as on the Union Theological Seminary YouTube page. If you enjoy the show, subscribe and share with your friends and family. Here is our conversation with Kelly Brown Douglas and Dean Cooper White. Good afternoon. I am Kelly Brown Douglas, Dean of the Episcopal Divinity School at Union Theological Seminary. And I want to thank you for joining us in uh, another one of our Facebook Live conversations on being church in the time of COVID-19. I am very privileged this afternoon to have joining me uh, for this conversation, Dr. Pamela Cooper-White. She is Vice President of Academic Affairs and Dean at Union Theological Seminary, as well as the Christiane Brooks Johnson Professor of Psychology and Religion. She is also, last but not least, uh, an Episcopal priest. Thank you, Pam, for being a part of this conversation. So it's great to be with you, Kelly, even if it has to be virtual. <laughs> I tell you, uh, but we are making the uh, best of it, of uh, this situation in which we all find ourselves with, uh, as you said earlier, Zoom fatigue and learning how to be community in times where we must be virtual. So there's so much to cover, and I want to jump right in. So before we explore particular concerns relating to mental health issues, let me begin by asking you from your vantage point as a priest, as well as a mental health professional, what would you say that it means to be church in this time of COVID-19? Well, as an Episcopalian and an Anglican, um, certainly as a Christian um, more widely, I think community is something that we understand to be at the heart of what we are as the body of Christ. And so how do you be the body of Christ when you can't bring bodies together is and, uh, a question that a lot of people are asking in communities now. And I think one of the things that I have really valued about the conversations we've been having at Union lately is ways to think about transcending our physical distance and yet maintaining a sense of connectedness and a sense of community. And we still are the body of Christ. And I think it's important that we can affirm that, uh, that it doesn't depend on physical touch in order to stay in touch with one another. As I've taught um, chaplains and, and caregivers and ministers over the years, um, there are times when you can't touch someone in the hospital. There are times when you can't touch somebody uh, in the congregation for various reasons. And eye contact is a form of touch. Um, looking at someone lovingly and caringly and empathically is a form of touch. Even in this strange world we all are finding ourselves in on Zoom, I can look at you, Kelly, and I see your spirit. I see your energy. I see your face. It's not the same as being in the same room, 
but it's a connection and I really feel connected to you. And so I think we can capitalize on these things ourselves. We're still the body of Christ. Yeah, it really forces us to really dig more deeply into what it means as church to be the embodied presence of uh, Jesus in the world. And, and what you're focusing on even more is the reality of that embodiment as sort of the sensual reality. And, and so what does it mean in this virtual reality to, to be that? Uh, let's move now further into the moment that we find ourselves in that brings us into this virtual space and this virtual reality. And that's the COVID crisis. As been pointed out by various mental health professionals and organizations, COVID-19 hasn't just disrupted our work lives, but it has also disrupted how our minds work. In this regard, this COVID pandemic is not just a medical phenomenon, as others have said, but also a mental health concern. Can you speak to that in general? And then we'll look at some of the specific ways in which that is the case. Sure. Well, and I always come from the perspective that mental health and spiritual and emotional health go together. Uh, and so as we're looking at a different way of being uh, a spiritual community together, it's really important that we think about the ways in which this is affecting people's, um, not just their physical being, but their psycho-spiritual being. Um, isolation has its effects, and um, isolation in particular for those who are depressed uh, can actually, it, it is a known exacerbating factor, in fact, uh, for depression, because without certain distractions, without certain routines, without certain activities, it's a lot easier to go into that brooding space, and pretty soon you're down in your cave. And so it's really important to be mindful about putting practices in place that will help you to get beyond that, uh, to stay out of the depths of the cave and also to reach out to people, even though you can't be with them physically present, but to stay in community. Because one of the downsides of depression is that it makes you want to hibernate and not reach out. And so it's important to have people that you can reach out to and make sure that you're staying uh, on the level playing field, that you are who you are. So as you say that, what are some of the signs that people should perhaps be looking for that may indicate a reason for concern uh, in terms of someone's mental health or emotional stability? Well, it's hard to separate out um, depression from anxiety, particularly in this time that we're in, because I think our, all of us have a heightened level, a baseline of anxiety just because of the COVID virus and, and the environment that we're living in. And we're being told to do things that we have to do to protect ourselves, which puts us into an anxious space. So depressive anxiety or anxious depression is actually um, something that we probably see a lot more of now um, and that they aren't separate things necessarily. So I would say um, if you're having panic attacks, um, if you're having trouble sleeping, um, insomnia or sleeping too much, um, suddenly wanting to binge eat or losing your appetite, um, 
these are all physical manifestations of depression in addition to feeling down or sad um, or you know having a heightened sense of worry uh, and these things can flip back and forth and um, it really I think we have to think about there's a normal level in which all of us have a heightened level of this now and so to normalize that and to say this is not I'm not going crazy this is what we're all going through and we're going through it together but if it gets to the point where it's really interfering with the things you have to do every day just to keep yourself healthy and to keep your your work or your study or whatever it is that you need to be doing if you can't do those things at all anymore um, if you're in relationships uh, that are going south really fast because you're not able to maintain um, your regular way of communicating and being caring and cared for those are really that's where it becomes more than the norm and if you begin to seclude yourself in a way that's not healthy or if you begin to feel like um, you might become suicidal uh, those are certainly major signs that you want to look out for yeah and I'm, I'm hearing a lot of ways in which the church can uh, step in and be church uh, at, at this time and I want to look at those in a moment but I want to cover some more other specific areas of concern now uh, before we begin to turn to what we might be able to do at this time as the body of Christ uh, in the world. One of those areas of concern is domestic violence and mm -hmm. intimate uh, partner violence. And this is uh, not simply an area of concern in this country, it's a global concern. Indeed, in countries such as France and Spain during this pandemic, they have, there have been code words that they have given for those who are encountering abuse uh, that they can, when they go to a pharmacy or go to a store, they can use those code words and that person will know that they're in danger at home and that they can call, they will then send someone there. The bottom line is that sheltering in place and social distancing means that persons, including children, are being quarantined or isolated with their abusers. Not to speak of the fact of the possibility for abuse and violence is increased. So can you speak to this? And what can we do to respond to this during this time? And specifically, what role can churches and faith communities play in this regard when we know that this is a problem and it's becoming an, an increased problem uh, during this period of COVID? Right. Um, it's a really important and I think, you know, so often a hidden reality that people live with. But if you're told to stay home and to shelter in place and your home is not a safe place to be, that puts you in a, um, a kind of a catch-22 that could be extremely dangerous. And another thing that's exacerbated this situation is that at the beginning of the COVID, um, many shelters were remaining open and trying to sanitize and, and make way make a way to do it but increasingly shelters are also finding themselves having to close and so where do people go and so one of the most important things is to have a safety plan and this is something also that clergy and lay pastoral caregivers can um, share with people that the best thing you can do is have a safety plan 
have a little bag tucked away somewhere with copies of your most important identification documents and um, prescriptions and insurance uh, information and the things that you would need for an overnight for a couple of nights. And then be sure that you know a handful at least of safe people where you could go for shelter uh, in the absence of domestic violence shelters. And I want to share a screen with you here. This is, there are many good, there are many, do you see the screen? Yes, I do. Okay, great. There are many excellent websites. Um, Futures Without Violence is an organization that's been around for a very long time. It's one of the first domestic violence organizations. Um, and this website, if you take a look at it, has many, many resources um, that are very, very useful. Resources for survivors, safety plans and self-care, and all of these are links that you can click on. Resources for advocacy organizations, shelter care and homelessness, community care, immigrants and financial relief and so forth. So that's a great resource um, to start with. And one of the things that is on their website that I found very helpful in this time in particular, in terms of safety planning is the idea of having a pod. This is a word that's just be, uh, beginning to be used in community organizations, but instead of thinking about having a community or a support network, who are those three or four people? And they might not be the people that are your closest family members or people that are otherwise um, some of your best friends. They're people you know who will respond in this situation if you call them and say, I need to relocate, I need to come into shelter now, or I need you to tell me that I'm not going crazy here, that I really do uh, need to uh, work this through and, and get out of here. These are people who will tell you the truth and who will help you strategically to find a safe place now. And so to have these three or four people kind of on call in your life is an important thing to set up. And, and you might wanna let them know that, you know, I'm not in a great situation right now and I'm gonna stay home for now, but I may need to contact you and may I do that. So you not only have a safety plan, but you have some safety people. Yeah, and what that also- the church can come into play. That's right. Because yes, what that also suggests uh, to me, Pam, on the other end of things, that, if we know of people uh, in our church community or even suspect of persons who are in these situations, uh, or we have friends that we suspect are in these situations, that at this time, we should be in touch with them, just as we should be in touch with those people who are isolated uh, and check in on them. You know, And that's where these sort of cold words become very important because they may not be in the position to say, uh, that this is happening to me, but if they drop certain code words. And so I think, again, there's, that's a role for, for the church and for uh, those of us who are not in those situations that we check in on those people who we know are most vulnerable or in vulnerable situations, be it domestic uh, or interpart inter intimate partner abuse or otherwise, which leads me to the another concern that is, of course, increased during this time of shelter in place, isolation and crisis. You spoke to it a little bit uh, earlier, and that's suicidality. Right. Uh, can you say a little bit about that? Yes, well, 
We know that the major risk factors for suicidality are, um, do you have a plan? And so this is if you're talking to someone and you're concerned that they've said something that makes you think this could be a possibility. The first question you wanna ask is, does it ever get so bad that you're thinking about hurting yourself? And if they say yes, then to follow up and say, does it ever get so bad that you're actually thinking about killing yourself? And to at some time with somebody so that you can hear those words coming out of your mouth is a very useful thing to do. Um, if the answer is yes, then the three risk factors are, have you thought about how you would do it? A plan is one of the most important risk factors. If somebody says, no, I just really wish with everything that's going on that I could just sort of lay down and die. That's a different level of risk than if they say, well, yeah, actually I've been stockpiling pills for the last three weeks, or I have a gun and I have the ammunition. That also means they have the means to do it. So if it's different to say, I thought about using pills. Do you have the pills? Yes, I do. It's a higher level of risk than, well, no, I don't. Uh, and then finally, is there history? Have they ever attempted suicide in the past or are they close to someone who did? Um, that is another threshold because you know that if they've crossed that threshold once, they're more likely to do it again. So those are the three risk factors. And those are things we can check out with people. Doesn't mean if they say yes to any one of those that you say, oh, well, that's low risk. It's always a risk once they've said yes. But it does give you a chance to, to assess whether you're going to say, do you have a therapist? Can I recommend someone to you? And I'll make sure that you get in touch with that person right now versus you need to call 911 and get an ambulance over there. So um, work with the person because if they're talking to you, there's a part of them that wants to live. If someone is 100% determined to commit suicide, they won't be having this conversation, they'll be doing it. So you know that you're making an alliance with the part of them that wants to live and work with that part of them to come up with a plan to keep them safe. Again, having a safety plan is very important. You talk with them about ways that they can distract themselves because most people are not intensely, acutely suicidal for more than about 15, 20 minutes at a time. And then it becomes a little bit more um, prolonged. If you can get them past that 15 or 20 minutes and then strategize ways to get them the help that they need, you're buying them time by having that conversation and that's a very important thing. The other thing I would say is that alcohol and drug abuse are also um, exacerbating factors and so is isolation. It's a known exacerbating factor. So you've got somebody who's isolated, who may have drugs or alcohol in the house, who has an idea of how they would commit suicide, that's a very high package of risks. So the other thing I always recommend, and, and um, in my intro to pastoral care class, I always recommend in your first call as clergy or as a caregiver, um, a religious leader, the first kinds of things you want to do after you have said yes to that call is you go out in the community and you meet as many therapists and social workers and mental, community mental health agencies as you can so that you're not going through the yellow pages in the moment of crisis, that you already have a list of people that you would send your own family member to and that you would trust, so that you can say to someone, I trust this person, I would see this person myself, and I highly recommend them. Of course, if you don't like them, we'll go back to the drawing board and find another person, but I'd really like you to call them today and also have some people on call. Not that you would abuse this, 
but one or two or three pastoral counselors or therapists that you know, if you pick up the phone and say, Sally's here on the phone with me, she's thinking about ending her life, would you make an appointment with her today? And unless that person is absolutely unable to do that, they will drop some things and say, yes, I will see her at two o'clock. So having those things lined up is very important. That's all, that's very helpful information. And, and, and I thank you for sharing that. And I hope that people take that in. One of the things that you've consistently said is of course, having access to uh, mental, mental health providers, uh, counselors, et cetera. One of the things that this global pandemic has revealed, particularly in relationship to our uh, national context, is a lack of readiness. We have seen that there on certain levels has been a lack of uh, readiness in terms of the medical infrastructure, et cetera. Uh, perhaps there's been a lack of political readiness. There's been a lack of societal readiness for a pandemic. People have also pointed out that there's been a lack of mental health readiness in terms of the mental health infrastructure. And it is revealing how the, uh, the gaps uh, within our mental health system. And so we're discovering that there are also not sufficient uh, mental health providers, a sufficient number of mental health providers, et cetera. Can you speak to that? What would it mean what, uh, for us to be more ready? What can we learn from this event? And what are people to do when I, I know that there are people who have tried to uh, get some mental health support during this time of crisis and that support just hasn't been there. Right. And of course I did just put up a screen share um, for the national suicide prevention lifeline, um, which is national and anyone can call that and, and get immediate emergency help. Um, what you're pointing to, I think is a part of a larger health, uh, problem that we've had in this country for a very long time, and it's very hard to separate it out from the politics of this. Um, I'll try to uh, remain more on the side of um, the mental health side of things, but, but where there is not a will uh, in our legislative bodies to view mental health as important, and I know the organization um, NAMI uh, the National Association for Mental Illness um, has been a, a very important lobbying force. But when we don't view mental health and mental illness as important as things like cancer and heart disease, then money isn't there for research, for developing um, community health centers. Community health centers have um, really dried up and diminished since their height in the, in the 60s and 70s. Um, it's very hard to get free care. And if you want to get free care, you have to wait a long time. And so um, there does have to be a political will to recognize that this is an important part of people's lives and it's just as important as a broken bone. And I think the other thing that we have to take into consideration is that there are also great differences in terms of racial and economic privilege. Yeah, talk about that. That's right. And um, the accessibility of services is not universally the same in every community or even within pockets of different communities. And so 
I think one of the important prophetic roles of the church is to join with congregations who are in those communities and pockets of communities to advocate and to agitate for better uh, and appropriate, context-appropriate, community-appropriate services. Let me follow up on that. Thank you, uh, Pam, for uh, that answer. And let me follow up on it a little bit, because just as you suggested, not, this COVID uh, crisis has revealed some of the uh, weaknesses, if you will, within our infrastructure, whether we're talking medical field, health field, mental health, uh, social, societal infrastructure. And as it has done that, it has revealed the ongoing, often overlooked crisis in this country of endemic injustice and growing uh, inequities and gross inequality. There was an article uh, a couple of days ago, a column in the New York Times, uh, New York Times by Charles Blow. Uh, and he spoke to the inequities that have existed in many communities, particularly in relationship to the black community, in terms of not only access to healthcare, but of course he spoke about the systemic and structural inequities that foster certain health issues, such as high blood pressure, such as diabetes, which of course exist at a much higher rate in the African American community, as well as in other uh, poor communities. It's a reflection of uh, inequities and a reflection of poverty. And so he said that we can expect a kind of racial explosion with this virus. That is to say that we will begin to see uh, in, in epidemic proportions in certain communities, the rise of this virus, the mortality rate. And we're really kind of seeing that when we think of places like New Orleans, and if you map uh, the virus. And so be, so people are becoming, those people who are already expendable people who are on the underside of justice in this country are now, they now have the potential of becoming and are becoming disposable. So my question is, how do you see this playing out in terms of mental health and what can we do about it? Well, I have a, 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 a very, um, sad example of this. Uh, one of our doctoral students who is a chaplain in a hospital in West Philadelphia, which is a predominantly poor black area of Philadelphia, um, he has three masks hanging in his office that he rotates every day because they're only issued a new one once a week. Hmm. Um, he sees patients who are at great risk but don't necessarily have the financial means to get treatment or to get enough treatment. Um, he can't see them all as a chaplain, um, of course, face to face, but there's an overwhelming need as hospitals are filling up. And he said, within one day, what was uh, uh, just a regular medical ward became an entirely COVID ward hmm. one day that nurses are being rotated from ward to ward, so they may be spreading the disease. And of course, all of the health workers in the hospital are scared because they are at risk themselves. Meanwhile, the University of Pennsylvania Hospital, which is only you know, maybe a mile away, has many, many, many more resources. And so when you're talking about people who are in county hospitals, in public hospitals, in hospitals that are predominantly serving neighborhoods of 
black and brown people and, and people who are in poverty, the hospitals themselves also less well set up um, and less well resourced in order to serve those folks. So, and there's also quite a stigma in the community, especially around mental health, there's a stigma in the community to seek help because for understandable reasons, for so long when people went to seek help, they were judged, they were blamed, um, they were put in, um, in mental health units that were unsanitary and frightening and abusive. And so people also in communities of color may quite rightly not feel like it's the safest thing to do to go seek out uh, traditional medical or mental health care. So there's kind of a perfect storm that's already been there. And now with this COVID crisis um, and the overrun of hospitals with people who are infected, um, we're seeing a, a great disparity between even the resources that are available in different communities. Yeah, so let's, let's, uh, let's end uh, with this question then as we think about all of these issues that we have just talked about. And so in a phrase or two, what's the message that you would want to leave us with, particularly uh, the faith community and religious leaders? Well, for a long time, I've been saying, especially, you know, around my work with battered women, but um, for a long time, I've been saying that it's a false division between the so-called pastoral and the prophetic. And I think that to do pastoral care rightly, you also need to be addressing the systemic and institutional uh, forms of oppression and discrimination that hurt people and put them in a position of being vulnerable and at risk in the first place. And to be prophetic, in order to sustain the kind of activist um, and political activism that I believe Christ calls us to do, to speak out for justice, we also have to remember to be kind to one another as we do that work and to think about care hand in hand with the justice work that we need to do, because otherwise we'll burn out. So I think those two things are, are intertwined and they're not separate callings for us. Thank you very much. And you're right, mental health should be seen as well as an issue of justice. I thank you so much for this conversation. I invite those who are listening in to share it with others because there is very useful information that will help us all get through this COVID crisis spiritually, mentally, emotionally, and physically whole. Thank you, Dr. Pamela Cooper-White for sharing your time. And I invite the listeners to join us again for future conversations. Thank you. Thank you.